go here. All right, so this is episode 22 now, I believe. Um, really making headway here. Today, I'm joined by a graduate student here at the University of Houston in political science, uh, Tom Hanna. Tom, how you, how you doing, man? Pretty good. How about you? Keeping up. I mean, it's pretty crazy that there's we're already in December, so 2023 is approaching quickly. Right. Um, I know for you, you're teaching, so you're probably swamped right now with uh, some a lot of grading. And obviously your research too. So how how is like the semester shaping up for you these last couple of weeks? Uh, finally getting to the point that it looks like there might be a break to work on the research a little more. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'm looking. F- yeah. So I'm looking forward to talking to you today because um, you're definitely somewhat out of my field, um, and a lot of people that I'm friends with also out of their field as well. Coming from a STEM background, um, I look forward to speaking to you today. Your dissertation. Um, on uh, what's your dissertation again? Actually, if you want to explain to everyone, well, so I'm working on autocracy promotion, mm. which is um, which is uh, non democracies trying to promote non democracy in other countries. Mm. Um, so we say autocracy sometimes because or dictatorship because it sort of rolls off the tongue better than non democracy, but it's this sort of everything that's not a democracy. Okay. Um, and so it's it's when those it's when autocracy promotion is uh, when those leaders are trying to undermine democracy or support other non democracies in mm. you know, abroad. Um, and I look at that. Uh, I've been looking at that from the perspective of how ideology, domestic ideology in non democracies, uh, relates. Yeah. So let's. Uh... Yeah, I definitely look forward. We'll definitely come back to that later on today. Um, but I actually also want to start with uh, your background a little bit. If you want to tell the viewers a little bit about yourself, um, you know, where you're from. And because I know you got your uh, your originally you got your um, bachelor's right at Missouri State. So I know, you know, what area are you from and how did you originally like get into, um, you know, I guess I know you got your undergrad in like uh, economics, but. And then that eventually turned into political science, but may, perhaps maybe we could start there. Uh, your undergrad and like you know where you came from. How'd you get into that? Yeah, I guess it's maybe a little more complicated than that. Um, I, I, a uh, couple of decades ago, I started my undergrad at Missouri State, uh, which was Southwest Missouri State University at the time in Springfield, Missouri. Um, it was the area that I grew up in, um, and I. Uh, had a double major in political science and economics um at, at various times i wasn't sure which i was going to major in mm-hmm. uh, and, and i didn't i didn't finish um i i left and i went and uh, i did uh, restaurant management and i sold real estate um and then about six or seven years ago i just decided um having gone through all the ups and downs of being in business for myself and running businesses for other people um and finding out that uh entrepreneurship uh you you can you know we all think of entrepreneurs like elon musk or jeff bezos who made lots of money um Mm. and the other the other end of that is lots of entrepreneurs don't make very much money and i i did okay but uh there came a point when i just said yeah i want to go back and do what i want to do um i can just as easily be poor and be a student again (laughs) as be as be poor and be uh and be in business um, and so I, I finished the, uh, I transferred my credits and finished the undergrad at University of Houston and, mm. and then, uh, decided to go to graduate school. Um, 
just because, uh, you know, political stuff had been something that had always interested me. I was politically active um, for for quite a while. Um, and the stuff I study now has nothing to do with that. Really? Well, I guess it kind of actually does make sense. So you grew up, you said you grew up in the Springfield, Missouri area. Uh, well, so the Joplin, Missouri area, mm-hmm. but that's about 70 miles from there. So Okay. It's like backwoods, Missouri. Uh, like, kind of. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, um, I I grew up in a town of about fifty thousand. That's in a metro area of about a quarter million. So a lot smaller than Houston, but mm-hmm. not totally backwoods. Um, although when I was in high school, my parents moved to a uh, a place out in the country with about three acres. So now they live in the backwoods. The backwoods, <laughs> but it, it but it's it's right outside of town. It's, yeah, it's five, five minutes out. So I definitely I haven't I definitely want to travel to like the Midwest states. I feel like. Like they'd be really, I I feel like they'd be really fun to go to. Like I I always tell my friends, like let's go to like Little Rock, Arkansas, or like St. Louis, or like I don't know somewhere in Iowa, like somewhere like really random, because I feel like those are like really fun cities that no one really talks about. But that's kind of like my yeah. take. Yeah, St. St. Louis is uh, well, St. Louis and Little Rock are both pretty cool. St. Louis, especially, I've been to more. They uh they have um a zoo there that has a penguin exhibit. <laughs> and they're not like behind glass like you can't touch them but you feel like they're going to reach out and touch you because you walk through the penguin habitat mm. it's, it's really cool so yeah that is, that is really cool so how did you originally get into to politics like because i know it's kind of funny i feel like we kind of grew up at least when i was younger my parents were like we never talk about religion and we never talk about politics and i was like well okay and um so how did you like originally get into politics? Like what kind of drew you to that? Oh, wow. So in my family, it's probably the opposite. I think mm. that people argue about politics almost constantly. I don't know that there's much arguing about religion because that's just, uh, I think everybody uh, maybe maybe figures that that's uh, not as relevant to here and now mm. yeah, or, or something. I, I don't know. Or, or maybe there was actually more agreement on that. I don't know. Um, so, but politics, yeah, there, there can be some pretty knockdown drag out things in the family. Um, yeah. I, but I started with, um, with just the interest in, in the things that were going on, you know, just in the news and, and locally, uh, when I was, you know, in high school, um, and I, at some point started reading political theory stuff, which in, in government, political theory is not anything to do with science. It's Mm. philosophy. Um, it's it's all of the what is good and bad type stuff. Um, and so I started there. But uh, what I do now is is more. Uh, so, so that's all the normative stuff. And now I do all the empirical uh, what actually happens in the real world stuff. Mm. Yeah, interesting, because I know. Well, I kind of want to get your opinion on this um, because I'm not in the political realm really at all. Honestly, I mean, um what I get from my politics kind of comes from like podcasts, but um, how do you feel about the, and this is not, I'm not claiming this. This is just what I've heard. And so I kind of want to hear your opinion on this is that the uh, like far left, like political agenda kind of takes over universities and kind of has a role into how people think in the political scheme. And how, how true do you think this actually is within the, the universities in general? Um, and yeah, I don't know if you have like any thoughts on that really. You know, the, the big one that I hear is that 
students are indoctrinated by professors, right? Right. Um, and so I'm not far left. Um, mm. uh, and uh, and I taught um, I taught this semester uh, the first time a class where some discussion of current political topics would happen. Um, and what I found is that actually the uh, the students are overwhelmingly at University of Houston, at least the students are overwhelmingly, I wouldn't say far left, I'd say center left. Mm. Um, they're they're almost all, for example, um, finding someone who was a Greg Abbott supporter rather than a Beto O'Rourke supporter in the Texas governor's race uh, mm. on the UH campus uh, would have been almost impossible. Um, but on the other hand, um, the the stories that you hear about uh, from the right about cancel culture and things like that, um, I, I don't necessarily think are true. Of course, I think UH is probably... A little bit of an unusual uh, situation because it's a really diverse university and it's in Texas. Um, it's not mm. in, you know, it's not in California or New York or Massachusetts. So, um, but it's also in urban Texas. So, um, so mm. I, I don't, number one, I don't think it's the faculty that are driving that. I think that, uh, you know, Winston Churchill said that if you're 20 and you're not a liberal, you don't have a heart. And if you're 40 and you're not a conservative, you don't have a brain. Um, and I probably misquoted him, but that's that's the. <laughs> um, so so I, I don't think I don't think it's driven by the faculty as much as um, as some on the far right would like to say. Mm -hmm. um, and and the other half of my experience with that is that I know that um, in political science, particularly, most of the faculty are very careful um, not to either either not to express their opinions at all or to encourage students to disagree with them. Mm -hmm. um, which um you know which was kind of which was the, the second was probably the approach i took but i i wasn't coming at it from a far left perspective i was probably coming at it from a center right perspective so i was mm. trying to challenge challenge um students to think about their their um their center left views and think about um not just uh think about um objectively what's the best way to get the results they want because yeah. sometimes uh, sometimes um when you think about things just ideologically, you don't take a neutral approach and try to see how the real world works. You may end up doing things that don't actually achieve what you want to do, which is mm. um, so. So there's like this uh, policy side of government. And then there's this this science thing that that people like me are doing where we're, we're researching what actually happens. And then there's all that political theory, good and bad stuff. And actually all three of those are the, the, the good and bad and the science have to work together to come up with the policy. Mm. Um, but the science itself has to kind of, has to, has to be neutral, you know? Yes. Yeah. yeah. As soon as we start uh, like living in different realities of what if, what is truth? I mean, that definitely can get into some mucky waters. It, well, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the what is truth question. That's uh, yeah. If you can't agree on what's objective truth, then you can't do the science. Yeah. But, but um, <laughs> yeah. I guess something that um that I'm I'm curious about too is as someone who doesn't really like. I mean, I have I have I guess I I mean I do have political views. Everyone does, right? It's just a matter of can you articulate them in like a good fashion. And so, do you find it? Um, do you find that at least at the undergraduate level, like students are pretty politically acclimated and actually can articulate their thoughts really well? Um, or is it just kind of like a bunch of jargon? You know, it's a, really generalizations. 
Um, well, that's and see, that's that's the thing that I was trying to challenge people on is that a lot of times the views are political talking points mm. um, that they've heard on the news, which that ha- or more 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 uh, often on social media and from friends. Um, but ultimately, ultimately, there are these talking points and sound bites um, that are really really simplified, oversimplified, and maybe don't connect to what actually is you know real world happening. Um, and the other place that they get it is it's just the biggest source of political identity is some kind of group that you identify with. And usually to start with, it's the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's also the peer group. So if you're in a peer group where everybody's a Beto supporter, you're going to be a Beto supporter. Yeah. Um, maybe you don't even really know why. Um, and and in a, in a political, so I'm teaching a junior level political science class, mostly political science majors. So maybe they're a little better at articulating it than other students. Um, but even so, um, reverting to those talking points um, tends to be a real, real challenge. Yeah. And how do, like, how do you, how do you kind of get around that? Like, how can you get to the deeper? Cause I feel like part of the problem well, maybe it's maybe it's different in the, the realm of political science, but certainly I feel like many people are kind of afraid to express their real opinion, um, which I, I don't know, it, you know, well, that could be good or bad. But I feel like a lot of people are definitely afraid to to say their true opinion. And two, yeah, it definitely is that people it's definitely the talking points, right? You kind of I mean, you could go through Instagram and TikTok, people will say something politically in a soundbite in like 20 seconds. And then it's like, Oh, okay, yeah, I kind of agree with that, or I don't. And it doesn't give the whole picture. And so what do you think is the like, what do you think the role of social media has to play in this? Because it has a huge role, obviously. And so I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, you know, social media takes a trend that I don't, I don't blame social media um, mm. the way a lot of people do. I, I think that it's a trend that I remember seeing before social media. Mm. Um, I, I remember I remember seeing it before most people were on the internet. Um, and I remember seeing it on the internet when people were discussing things in discussion groups where it was, you know, before social media was a thing, there were, you know, there were listservs of emails and there were, mm. Uh, things like Usenet. I don't know if that's even still around, but um, it was uh, it was these news groups that that were shared across servers, and and people would have long discussions, and they were text discussions. And the same thing happened, though. People would always start out with a really simple statement, and people would come in and try to poke holes in it, and try and and just uh, argue with you know somebody that made a general statement, and people want to come in and attack it with specific cases where it doesn't really apply. Um, or if you think if you think about what the person was talking about, those specific cases are really a, a different case entirely. And 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 people are people can be not very nice when they're hiding behind a keyboard. Um, maybe they're, maybe they're a little more polite in person. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the, but then the other half of that is that that we do to some extent have that um, idea that we're not supposed to talk about religion and politics. Uh, but then but then when we have to we're not very well trained for it because we've taken the attitude that we shouldn't do it. And yet um, Charles Krauthammer wrote uh, the late Charles Krauthammer, who was a um, political uh, commentator um, and, and, uh, and member, it was actually a member of the Carter administration, but it was Mm. Republican, Republican late in life, um, Fox news guy. Um, 
but a really, really smart guy. I wrote a book uh, before he died called The Things That Matter. Mm. Um, and and he wrote about all these things from his life. Um, but if you read the book, he was he was really uh, a lot of people took it as, oh, this is the political guy is going to talk about the stuff that really matters. Um, but he made it really clear um, that politics is the thing that matters um, because it affects every uh, I'm really, really paraphrasing him, but it, it affects yeah. everything else. It affects everything else we do in our lives. Um, and so if the politics is messed up, then all of the things that we think that matter, uh, they get messed up, too. Yeah. Uh, and he definitely said it a lot better than that. But. Yeah. I think what's I think that definitely comes into play, too, when you when we talk about the 2016, the yeah, t- yeah 2016 election where it's like, I mean, like. Ha- like Trump coming into office and basically like, <laughs> I mean, that guy is such a, he's such a meme. Like, I mean, he really is like, cause he, he like, he was the best at making sound bites sound really good and getting people to like kind of buy into that. And so I think people, and, and I mean, in hindsight definitely wasn't the best, but at the time, I mean, that was like a, a political like lightning storm of just like of everything happening at once. And I think that it speaks to it. And I think, and like a lot of my friends, it was like, we were at like, we would have like heated debates on the Clinton and Trump and then eventually Trump versus Biden. And it was like, does the president really even matter? Like, does it, does it really matter? Like, or does what really matters is kind of like at your local government, right? Like, are you paying attention to what's happening in your County and in your state? You know? So I don't know if like you have any thoughts on like the, how the federal government governments run, what's happening at the Senate and the House of Representatives versus like at your local government and like what's actually in your control. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I, I don't, uh, you know, I don't study that stuff directly. Mm. Um, but, um, as far as, uh, as far as what you're saying, yeah, I think that people would feel a lot less frustrated if they concentrated more on the local level. Mm. Um, I, so there's there's um there's some uh theoretical and and even empirical stuff uh that that really you know we talk about um you know you have to vote or you can't comment and and lots of things and voting's really important and all of that and a uh, one vote matters but the reality is that one vote almost never matters mm-hmm. um and and from a rational perspective um it actually doesn't make any sense to even worry about it um, the, the, uh, the, 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 um, the difference your vote will make versus the cost of actually going and standing in the line. It's actually irrational to do it. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, I, it, it's probably people ought to get a lot less heated about it. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other, the, the, on the other hand of that is, um, you know, the thing that people liked about Donald Trump was he said what he said, what he meant, Right. And and there's a lot there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, he he he's a guy that that didn't pull punches. Um, yeah. If he if he thought something, he wasn't going to pull his punches. Um, but the, but on the other hand, he very much talked in sound bites. Um, not even sound bites, but his whole uh, his whole political velocity was built into uh, built into fitting within the old format of Twitter of 180 characters. Yeah. Before they even had threads in Twitter, because Twitter now has the thing where you can create long, long threads. Mm-hmm. It was all what will fit in that amount of space and no nuance and no basic understanding. 
Um, and he really didn't have a very good understanding of the way government works or the institutions. Uh, he talked about making America great again, but then he didn't talk, but then he didn't understand America's core institutions that went back to the founding. So mm-hmm. how are you going to make a great make it great again? Assuming it even needed to be made great again, how are you going to do that if you don't understand what made it great in the first place? Yeah, uh, it was, uh, you know, so so there was good and bad there, and and um, you know, um, you know the other the other thing is that he was a very polarizing figure, yeah. and uh, that 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 uh, that extreme polarization is probably more more of something to worry about than. Um, Really, than than anything else right yeah. now, um, the, the little the little the, the fact is that the bulk of the Democratic and Republican parties, the policies they're going to push are not that different. Yes. Uh, so it's the it's the people that are out there trying to uh, polarize people to be against each other that is the bigger threat. If we're talking about threats to democracy, which is the thing that I would really be worried about. Yeah. So, so I was definitely talking to my roommate about that because the I feel like if you the the basic Democrat and Republican like in the Senate House, they really aren't that much different from one another. Um, and I, I don't have any like specific examples. So, you know, take take my take my advice with a grain of salt. It just seems that way anyway. Um, <clears throat> but things like. Things like. uh you know, free daycare. Like, how is this not a thing yet in America? You know, it's like, it, it, I feel like something like that could not easily be implemented, but we see this in other countries, um, European countries where that can be done. And I feel, I, I don't see a reason why like something like that can't be implemented here. Um, but, you know, I guess it's another conversation for another day. What I also want to ask you about though, is um, kind of the idea of the two-party system, because at the end of the day, like when I was when I just turned 18, you know, I was voting in the Trump Clinton election and at 18 years old. You don't know nothing about the world. And like my opinion was, well, it's either Clinton or Trump. But that kind of shows, I guess, a bigger issue is that, like, I don't know if you have any thoughts about the two party system, because, like, it's always just going to boil down to, like, this side versus the other side, you know, and like, I don't know if that's really doing a disservice to um you know, what American politics could look like, you know what I mean? So the, the two party system, <clears throat> so there, there are actually other parties on the ballot, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've voted third party. Um, the, uh, um, the two party system, there are some things that are specifically done in law to maybe make it a little harder for the third parties. Um, but it turns out they're not really all that necessary. We would have a two party system because of the way our ballots are set up mm-hmm. just like the, just because of the fact that we have this really simple um, majoritarian system where the person with the biggest number of votes wins, um, the incentives in that and the costs of campaigning um, are such that there, there's a thing that's actually, we don't have very many laws, physical laws in political science that we can say scientifically are proven as laws. Um, there is one of them. It's called Duverger's Law. Okay. Um, and it says that if you have so the, the sort of simple version of it, without going into detail, is that if you have these simple majoritarian systems like we have, you're always going to, uh, at equilibrium, you're always going to end up with two dominant parties. Mm. 
So it's not it's not anything legal like suppressing the third party vote, which a lot of third party people will tell you is being done. Mm. Um, it's actually just a result of the fact that um, with these winner take all uh, single party or I mean, single district, single member district uh, elections like we have for Congress, um, that's what's going to happen, that uh, that uh, people are going to end up voting in to where you end up with two parties. Um, and it, it has to do with voter behavior. It has to do with candidate behavior. It has to do with the cost of getting elected um, and the fact that they're fighting for this winner-take-all prize. Mm. Um, and so, um, and one of the other things that we know is that when you have two parties like that, um, what ends up happening is that you end up with about half the voters on one side, half on the other. And it's kind of like if you have... Um, when you uh, see if you had a business, if you had a, a main street that had two businesses and they're competing for the same people, they're both going to end up at the center of main street um, because they, if they move a little bit away from the center, that their competitor actually gets to ca capture more of the business. Mm. The same thing happens in politics. They move very close together because they start to move away from the center. They're actually giving votes to the other side. So, um, so the result is that even with this two-party system, we end up with uh, two parties that are actually very near the the ideal of the median voter. Mm. So, um, Do you think that's actually true in today's like society, though? Well, or? I mean, I, it's what we were just talking about. I don't think there's yeah. a huge a huge policy yeah. difference between actual Republicans and Democrats when they actually get to um, doing things. Yeah, um, and you know, you brought up the example of like the free daycare. Um, so the U.S. is actually so there are countries that have that, um, but then those same countries, um, like you talk about um, the Scandinavian countries that are sort of held up as a lot of people call them socialist, right? Yeah. It turns out it turns out they're actually a lot more economically free. Well, not a lot more, but they're they're actually ranked higher on economic freedom in the United States. Um, mm. so, so some of some of how they afford some of those programs. Uh, is that there are other things that we do um, that they don't, and so their businesses uh, produce more. Mm. Um, uh, on the other, and and some of it is also, you know, in those specific cases, is that Norway has a lot of money from oil. Um, yes, uh, very true. Proportion of their as a proportion of their economy, so they have a source of revenue that we don't. Or that they we also they also like kicked out basically any like foreign non Norwegian oil companies were basically kicked out right so that's only like Norwegian based oil companies. Yeah, and it's the big thing is just that as a percentage as a percentage of their economy, it's much mm. because we produce more oil, but yeah. it's not it's not as big a percentage of the economy. Yeah. Um, Do you think it's something to be said though about the size of the Scandinavian countries though, that that those things work because I mean their their populations are just much smaller than ours like do you think there's any like do you think there's truth to that like well, I can't yeah even... so it's go ahead go ahead sorry well yeah it's more like it's more like having uh it's more like having the city council for a really big city um but mm. then they also have all the sovereign powers of a nation so yeah it's mm. much more it's much more like local politics um in terms of like reaching a consensus yeah uh, but I, but I, but it's also just some of it is uh and and i Scandinavian probably wasn't the right place to go because I don't know enough about their internal politics, but um, a lot of it's just about trade-offs too. Mm. So whereas they may be picking up that they want these particular aspects of the social safety net to be in place um, and we pick something else, 
um, they may pick uh, ways to make their economy more competitive that ends up paying for that. Mm. And we do some things like we have a lot of really we have a lot of regulations mm. um, here, here here in the land of the free um, that we don't really talk we don't really talk about. And a lot of them are. Once the regulations passed, it never it never goes away. So we have a lot of redundant, outdated regulations and mm. and and things like that 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 cost economic efficiency. And if you know if some of those were gone and the economy were more efficient, we might have more money to spend on things like free childcare. So that's that's a trade off. Yeah. Know? Something else I wanted to ask you is, um, oh shoot, I lost my train of thought. Um, what was it? Uh, oh shoot. Um, dang, I had a really good question and I don't remember it. <laughs> All um, right, well, um, go off the cuff. Hang on, let me think of my question. Dang it, what was my question? Okay. Oh my god, this is gonna bother me. I should start writing stuff down. Um, that's what I have to do at all, like at conferences and stuff. I have to write write the question down because otherwise, I start talking and I don't and, remember why. I oh, write. I remember a question. I remember that. Uh, your the what are your thoughts on um, and if you have any advice for where to get like pretty um, accurate like political information? Like how do you, like how do you personally kind of keep up involved with what's going on? Um, I don't know if you have any, any advice of with that. So I'm probably the wrong person to ask about this. Because oh no, <laughs> no. I mean, they're 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 I because I just haven't been following uh, stuff. I'm very narrow with what I follow. Mm. Uh, but uh, I use a Google News feed and I read the news. Um, mm. I don't I don't watch TV news. Yeah. Uh, I and I I tend to read. Um, excuse me. I try to balance my sources. So I do, um, if I read something on Fox news, I read it on CNN news. So I don't watch their, you know, I don't watch their, them on TV, but they have their stuff written up article style. Mm -hmm. Um, I read the, I read the Washington post and the New York times. Um, those are, um, they, they definitely, they are left leaning, but they're not horribly left leaning. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I read the, you know, for international news and to some extent, even major U.S. news, I read The Guardian, which is actually supposed to be really left leaning, but seems very, kind of balanced. Mm. Uh, and yeah. uh, if, you, if you're the kind of person who wants to listen to to radio, NPR mm. is really good. Um, their editorial policy is left leaning, but their news coverage is really balanced. They go out of their way. Um, they go out of their way to talk to people who do not have those those left leaning views. Um, that's the biggest thing, though, is I would say if you read something, be aware of the source, be aware of their editorial policy. If it's right leaning, then read read a left leaning source on the same subject, um, and that look that gives you the chance to say what you ultimately can say is: Are there points of agreement? And those yeah. are the things that you can say are probably close to being objective truth. Yeah. Uh, the other, the other stuff, the things that they don't agree on, you can say are probably editorial disagreement and ideological disagreement. Mm -hmm. um, so the, so that's the biggest thing. I, and and other than that, try to go with the, uh, you know, even among the left leaning and right leaning, there are 
sort of mainstream outlets. Yeah. Um, so Fox News, people who are on the left like to complain about a lot, and Fox News likes to build itself self as fair and balanced. And in reality, it, it it is more balanced than a lot of sources. They they do try to present both sides. Um, their editorial policy is right leaning, and it definitely shows. Um, but there are also there's all there also is something called Newsmax that is right leaning that is just off the charts right leaning and <laughs> some of their some of their facts are just suspect uh yeah. you know they they were responsible for really pushing uh, one or two outlets that were really responsible for responsible for pushing the idea that the election was stolen from Donald Trump um that yeah that that you know in in venue after venue um in court after court Trump appointed judges you know, said there's nothing here. You know, his his own appointees said there's nothing here. His own attorney general said there's nothing here. Um, and Newsmax was out there, and and probably still is out there pushing the idea um, that the election was stolen from him. Um, and, uh, and there are there are similar similar um, organizations on the left. There are organizations on the left that are still trying to say that the 2000 election was stolen from Al Gore. Um, which, which again, uh, objectively, there were audit there were audits done on the ballots from that election, and George Bush won. Um, but there are uh, even aside from the Supreme Court decision, um, George Bush won the election, um, and the uh, you know there are still left wing outlets that are out there trying to say the opposite. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, let's try to stick to the mainstream outlets. If you get out, if you get off into the La La Land, realize where you're at. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's fun to read those, but realize what you're doing. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, some of the reading I've, I can only imagine reading like a really far right versus a really far left, like um, editorial on like the same, the same subject and just seeing <laughs> what they talk about and how they frame it. I, sometimes you gotta, I would go to that for some comedy, honestly. I think that'd be pretty funny. Um, yeah. You see how different they are. Um. But where do you where do you see it kind of going? Like, where do you see the the? Because I know because Trump just announced he's going to run twenty twenty four. I don't know if Biden's going to run twenty twenty four. I don't know if the Democrats have a uh, if they're going to have a candidate with Trump running in twenty twenty four. I'm a little I'm a little uneasy because I think we're gonna we're gonna spiral down into this uh, 2020 election again. And the way that he uh, he carries himself is very <clears throat> forthright and. Uh, Truth be told, I don't know anything about his policies. I mean, if I told you, if I told you back in 2016 when I would have voted for him because I was 18, and as an 18 year old, I, I really appreciated his his uh his kind of truth, but I didn't know anything about his policies. So you know, that's just an 18 year old me who doesn't know anything. But you know, how do you how do you feel going into the 2024 um at all? I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, so I so I'm kind of I so in 2016 I, I kind of felt like you did uh, in mm. some ways I I did kind of appreciate the way that uh, he told it like it was um, except prior to him actually becoming a candidate because his opening statement uh, when he decided to announce uh, was just vulgar and awful yeah um, and unpresidential and uh, articulated some pol- not policies but articulated some ideas that were just beyond the pale. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, 
especially some of the things he said about immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I was I was pleasantly surprised, actually, by his actual policies. But his rhetoric once he became from the time he became a candidate until today has just been, you know, erratic at best. And yeah, it's really bad. Um, but even even moving beyond Trump so that the. The big issue is this, when we define democracy, um, mm-hmm. one of the things that defines a democracy is that there has to be real contestation. Um, so that is, there have to be at least two contending parties. Um, if you have a single party uh, country with elections, that's not a democracy. Uh, and the Republican Party is the minority party. And as it stands, the Republican Party without the Electoral College could not ever elect a president. Which means that without the electoral college, which a lot of people don't like, without the electoral college, the way things stand today, we would actually have a single party, a rule. It would be just Democrats, um, and the only the only reason we don't have that is at the presidential levels because of the electoral college, and then at the congressional level is because it, the the way the congr- congressional districts are set sort of mirrors what happens in the electoral college. We've got the Senate. That's uh, by state, um, and then there's all of that gerrymandering that people don't like at the congressional district level, that actually allows Republicans to be competitive. And if they weren't competitive, we'd have a single party, uh, we'd have a single party dictatorship. Um, and so, so that the, the big danger is um, that the Republican party becomes even weaker so that even the electoral college and those other things don't save us from having a single party dictatorship. Mm. Uh, Now, when uh, you say just real quick, I want to just define dictatorship because it's, uh, it it, it gets a negative connotation, but like, what is it like? What is the definition of that? Just a single party? Well, no, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a catch all anything that doesn't qualify as a democracy, but, Uh, but, but the the core the core feature that defines democracy is that there has to be contestation. There has to be a real clash of ideas where there's a there's a one one element of it is that whatever the party in power is has to have a non-trivial chance of losing. Mm. If they don't have a non-trivial, if they you know, it's not just zero. It's not just that there's a, an above zero chance, but there has to be some realistic expectation that they might lose. If there's no realistic expectation that they might lose, there's no point in even having an election. Okay, I see. Um, and and yeah, so what I'm saying is that without the electoral college, um, there would be um, it, it would be it'd be run by Democrats, right? I mean, it's essentially yeah. what you're saying. That would be that's, yeah. that's pretty scary. I mean, not that not that Democrats are bad, but like I'm saying, the idea of a single party well, is pretty scary. And, and because and because of identity because of identity politics and because of the fact that younger voters overwhelmingly right now identify Democrat, although that might change as they grow older, um, the uh, that trend is 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 getting worse. Mm. Um, and so the the big threat really is that the Republican Party needs to change um, mm. so that it, so that it can be more competitive. So that it's not completely relying on these institutions uh, that people don't like that could eventually be changed mm. uh, to even be competitive. Um, and and uh, you know, in the aftermath of Trump, one of two things is going to happen: either either the Republican Party becomes much less competitive, uh, in which case 
given what I said before about, you know, our system is set up that there are going to be two parties, mm -hmm. uh, it's possible you could end up with a different second party. Um, the other possibility is that, you know, some trauma happens, the Republican Party ends up performing itself and being better than what it was before. I mean, mm. it's really got to go one of the, if it doesn't go one of those two ways, then the other way that it can go is that we end up with a single party system and a single party systems, you know, Never almost, almost, almost as bad as no elections at all. Yeah. Um, oh man, you're scaring me, Tom. <laughs> you're scaring me. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, I'm off. I'm optimistic about it, but I'm not. You know, it, it's, uh, you know, not certain. By yeah. Any means. Yeah. Of course. So I also want to get into uh, this kind of. I guess it's actually kind of a good segue into your dissertation. <laughs> I guess. Uh, so you. Let's see. Hang on. Just give me one second. Um, um, where is it? Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, you have you're doing your dissertation on uh, autocracy uh, leadership ideology, right? Yes. Um. So let's 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 kind of dive into that a little bit. Like, what kind of um, what's like the background of your dissertation and then how did you like originally get into that? So I was interested in, um, <clears throat> I was interested in why certain dictators do bad things basically, mm. um, in terms of, uh, you know, things that are negative for democracy, uh, because, um, most of these bad behaviors that we think about, even though they may draw big headlines, they're actually pretty rare. Um, like war, for example, um, believe it or not, war is in statistical terms, a rare event. Hmm. Uh, most of the time, most countries are at peace with each other. And that includes dictatorships. That's not just democracies. Most of the time they get along. So I was I was just interested in what motivates um, these leaders to not get along. Uh, hmm. And I started looking at um you know, the, the big headline cases, the big, uh, the really bad cases like, you know, Hitler, Stalin, more recently, uh, Pol Pot in Cambodia, or, um, you know, the Taliban in Afghanistan, what motivates them? And, you know, the common threads seem to be extremism, like ideological extremism. And so the question then was, well, is it just that these are really powerful dictators who have their own personal ideological agenda, and they want to they want to push it and so they do bad things because it's their ideological agenda or is there something deeper going on and um so in those headline cases um in a lot like you know hitler um fairly clear that it was in fact a case of a guy who was unhinged uh had these these really really ridiculous awful horrible ideological ideas um, and he managed to get the power to put them into place, and it very much was his agenda, um, although the agenda probably took on a life of its own even beyond him, but but it was definitely driven driven by the dictator. Um, but it turns out that, you know, delving into it deeper in the vast majority of cases, that's not what's going on. Mm. Uh, but uh, so, so I was wondering, you know, what about these smaller cases that we don't hear about that aren't as headline graphic? still this bad behavior going on um what's what's the root cause and um <clears throat> so i was 
So that's what I was looking at. And it, it's expanded some beyond then. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, my, my initial thing was that I thought that it probably was these personal preferences of of dictators, that they were acting on their own. But part of that was um, coming at it from the, the simplistic notion that dictators can do what they can do or that dictators do things because they can and, and they're able to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in reality, dictators are a lot more um, limited in what they can do. Um, they're not necessarily able to do just anything they want to do. Uh, and were you this, <clears throat> how much did the dictators psychology come to play? Because I know you're kind of political science. So I don't know how much you considered their psychology or were you trying to look at this purely through a political ideology point of view, like lens? Well, I was trying to look at it through ideology and I talked to one of the, uh, political psychology uh, people in our department a little bit um, about trying to look at some psychological types. That was early on, though, Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, it it turns out that um, it's not uh, so it turns out that it's not so much the dictator's personal preferences anyway. Um, Mm. And so the dictator's personal psychology doesn't really play into it. when we analyze, um, when we analyze not just dictators but also political leaders in democratic countries, um, the main motivation um, we, we find that we can predict most of their behavior, or not necessarily predict. Things are unpredictable, but we can account for most of their behavior if we consider that they're they're rational mm. um, and that they have one major motivation, which is to gain and maintain power. Okay. Um, we, we can explain almost everything um, with those two things. Um, so if we start talking about psychological motivations, that may toy with the that may toy with our definition of rationality. But mm. rationality just says that um, that a person, uh, a rational person, maximize, maximizes their own self interest given their beliefs, and so their beliefs is where the psychology might come into play. You're right. Uh, but it, the the thing is, those personal beliefs of the dictator, it turns out, in even in dictatorships, um, don't come into play a lot. They're not. Okay. There, there are cases where they do, but they're the minority of cases, and so that's something I, I would like to look at more later. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, I'm I'm working on the sort of the broad statistical averages, the what drives behavior for the mass of cases. That's what I was going to ask you next because I know we were we were kind of talking offhand. Is one of the things I'm also interested in is for, as a STEM, I'm very hands on. Like things I do in the lab are like I can physically see what is happening here, and so I'm curious to to know about look like how does statistics come into play in your research because. To me, it's very. It seems kind of abstract. Like, how do you take? I I don't understand how you take how you can take political ideologies and statistics. Like, I don't understand where those two kind of intercross. If that makes sense. Yeah. Well, so measuring ide- ideology is one that's really tough um, because mm-hmm. um, because so first of all, you've got to define it, and it's defined a bunch of different ways. Um, the way that the the standpoint that I come from is it's. Um, it's a group of principles. Uh, it's a group of principles or, or ideals that are associated with a specific program of action. Mm. Okay, so it's got two elements. Um, but in order to measure it, um, you could, you know, I could measure the rhetoric. 
Um, but that requires actually going through somehow and measuring like speeches and things. Um, and, and eventually, eventually I'd like to do that. That might be like a big machine learning project. Yeah. Um, to actually be able to do that. Um, the issue is actually collecting enough text to actually be able to analyze. Um, that's, that's a, that's collecting the text is actually a big, uh, big project, like a several research assistance kind of project. So that's yeah. a, that's a long-term goal. Um, to measure it now, I mostly rely on um, expert surveys. Um, there's a data set that I use a lot. It's called the Varieties of Democracy data set. Mm -hmm. And they, they survey country oh. experts on a whole range of questions. Um, and some of them involve ideology of the, of the, of the regime. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's, it's this massive data set um, where they may have results from five or 10 country experts and they use, uh, they use advanced statistical methods to actually uh, make those uh, useful, um, turn them into a useful scale, but, but they have that data going back, you know, in the main data set, the stuff I use goes back to world war World War II, mm -hmm. um, they have stuff going back further and, and across all the countries. So, so this know, is reputable. Like, you yeah, feel very, yeah, 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 yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a very, um, yeah, they, um, yeah, they use good experts. I mean, these are academic experts who are knowledgeable about the countries um, and they don't rely on a single person for a country mm -hmm. in cases, in cases where they only, where they have a smaller number of experts, they have a code to show that. So you can throw those cases out. I'm going to rely on just the cases where they have enough experts to actually get a good uh, number. Um, you know, so ideology is tough um, mm -hmm. because, because there are different ways you could measure it. Um, the uh, Some of it can also just be measured by the action because if a leader's out there talking this game and then the stuff they're doing doesn't match it, then, you know, how, how, do you, how ideological are they really? Right. Um, you know, for other stuff, um, for some of the other stuff that, that are behaviors, um, it's a lot easier to measure. I mean, war is, you know, war is really easy to measure. Even small scale conflicts, we have really good data available on. Mm. Uh, and, and that was the first thing that I looked at was conflict. Um, and, you know, so on the conflict side, which was my de dependent variable side, we got really, really good data available. Um, and lots of it. So like uh, I have um, it's country year data. So if I, if there are like 180 plus countries in the world and going back to 1945 in terms of number of country year observations, it's something like, you know, what is that? Uh, uh, 18,000 observations, you know, something like that. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's, there's no, there's no problem with statistics on that. In fact, the big problem there is that, um, almost any effect you look at is going to be significant just because you have so many observations. It's really easy to get significance. So you don't know whether you, you don't necessarily know whether that, that P value is really telling you much. Mm -hmm. And can you like differentiate, like, let's say, cause if you're trying to do, are you just trying to do completely like political ideology? Like, is it really, po is it really possible to like differentiate? Like how does economy come into play? How does like, ethics come into play like is there a way to differentiate those things or is it completely just political you know what i'm saying like can you really differentiate those things um 
Well, so the main, uh, actually the biggest component of, of ideology that uh, people look at is this left-right economic component. Okay. Um, um, so um, I actually wanted to look at ideologies that included like ethnic ideologies, religious ideologies. The data on those, the data on those is not as good or as widely available. Mm. Um, the uh, if you're looking at those left-right ideologies, you you can look at the rhetoric and then you can look at the actual economic, the actual behavior, the actual economic policies that are put into place, mm. and that's uh, the behavior can actually back up whether the ideology is solid or not. Um, the uh, um, so that's. Yeah, so that's that's uh, that's tough. Um, as far as um, the economics, uh, you know, looking at, you know, one of the things is these are really complex systems. So I'm not sure if yeah. this is what you're asking, but but like um, ec economic, uh, not economic policy, but economic reality affects things. So like economic growth affects behavior, right? Mm. Uh, so those are things that uh, we actually have to consider as as um, control variables um in the models mm -hmm. uh, all, all of the things like gdp or or uh, sometimes it's per capita gdp because how it's spread out matters okay um, um just uh economic capacity you know if you're looking at relations between two countries economic capacity differences matter a lot because mm -hmm. if they're um if one country is just massive has massively more capacity than the other um, they're they're going to be the dominant partner in any relationship. So yeah. So what what can be learned so far? Like, have you kind of? Um, I know it's not complete yet, but do you have any like conclusions? Any not any conclusions yet, or you know, has anything like been learned? So so one conclusion is um, so I mentioned those sort of headline cases. They're kind of they're um, a phrase that one author used is uh, messianic autocrats. Um, these, okay. these these real, really bigger than life figures that where they set the agenda for their followers mm -hmm. and they have this uh, he called it a missionary ideology. Um, so so one idea is that they're the ones that drive autocracy promotion. Um, the sort of alternate idea is that autocracy promotion, yes, that it is ideological autocrats that do it, but they're not doing it because they're these messianic figures. They're doing it because they're responding to their ideological support groups um that's um and and <coughs> it turns out that in the in the vast averages they're they're not messianic autocrats they're these guys who are responding to what their supporters want mm. uh, and but but those other cases those headline cases they do exist i mean i they show up in the statistics i can actually see them in the statistics and and I and and if I go look at them, they're they're the ones that you would that you would expect um, mm -hmm. to be that. I mean, I, there's there's a what there there are some ways that I can get at um, at which is going on, um, but it's in the broad cases, it's it's dictators responding to their support groups, um, and the reason and the reason they're responding to their support groups is um, <clears throat> so. My my theory um, is that the reason that they want to do these things abroad is not because they're really like the reason that they would do something 
uh, in another country is not that they're that concerned with what's going on in the other country. Mm-hmm. It's that they're wanting to send a signal to groups at home. Oh, um, okay. So, so when you when you say, "Oh, I'm this ideology, I'm this uh, ethnic socialist ideology," and you align with this uh, group that has an ethnic component, a socialist component, um, that you're beholden to that group. And you have to send some kind of signal of your ideological commitment. Well, if you start doing things at home where you're like throwing people in jail and things like that, or, you know, uh, taking property from people and you start interfering with the economy of your own country, mm-hmm. then you're, you're, you're messing up your own country. So you want to figure out a way to send a signal to that group uh, without messing up things at home. You go send a signal by doing something that's ideologically appropriate in another country, mm. whether it's uh, whether it's uh, picking a fight, uh, figuratively or literally, or it may be supporting a rebel group in another country, supporting a, a terrorist action in another country, um, or it might just be um, the the latest thing I'm working on is like uh, Cuba and Venezuela have a thing in Latin America where they're uh, trying to get together trade and financial support in order mm-hmm. to encourage in order to encourage other left wing governments. Or in order, or in order to, to encourage other governments to become more like them, mm. uh, and uh, so you know, so they're doing that. Um, that that sends a signal to their supporters at home. If if we're doing this abroad, we'll do it at home too. And and maybe it maybe doing it at home may be more costly. Yeah. So they they really want to avoid it, but send the the impression they're willing to do it. Mm. Interesting. Um, <clears throat> A very interesting case studies I think people should take a look at because obviously, you know, the easiest one is always going to be Hitler. Like we could always, there's millions of case studies you could do on Hitler and why that, how it happened, why it happened, whatever. Stalin, same thing. Like we could do millions of case studies on like his political ideology, all the whole shebang. But are there other interesting case studies that you found that people maybe aren't discussing that much in the literature or people don't know about that? people should kind of go take a look for themselves just on their own time. Like, this is pretty interesting. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah. So, so, so that's the interesting thing is a lot of the the big case studies that would immediately come. It's, it's tough to find a case. Uh, It's tough to find a case of this sort of uninteresting explanation because ultimately Mm. this, this explanation that, that I think applies to the big chunk of cases is is less flashy than oh here's this messianic autocrat right so those are the easy case studies to come up with um a case study that um is uh um in in hindsight one of these larger than life figures um but in reality was a guy who was very much uh answerable to his support groups um was uh nasser from egypt okay uh, and and the specific case that's important is the relationship with Israel and the the Six Day War, which Egypt mm. got absolutely spanked in the Six Day War. What, um, I, I'm completely unfamiliar with this, so I don't know if you want to provide a little context to this. Okay, so so this you know we're talking about the late '60s, early '70s. Okay, uh, the Six Day War. Um, well, so first of all, in the 50s, there was a Suez crisis um, where um, where Egypt uh, nationalized the Suez Canal and 
and Israel, which belonged to Britain, uh, actually belonged, I think, to Britain and France. Um, Israel, Britain, France went to war against Egypt. Uh, Egypt lost. Um, the, uh, I, I mean, it, it wasn't a major loss, but it, but it, it sort of returned to the status quo that the, uh, the Suez Canal remained open to international traffic. And, okay. spe- and specifically, the Suez Canal and the straits that led into the Suez Canal were supposed to be available to Israeli shipping. And so from the time of the Suez Canal crisis to to the Six-Day War, Israel regularly and constantly made it a point of policy that any blockade of their shipping in those straits would be considered an act of war. So there was just no doubt you do that. And, and, and Egypt was aware of it. Under international law, Israel was at least mostly in the right on that. Um, it would definitely <laughs> violate agreements. Um, and so Egypt knew exactly what it was doing. And in 67, uh, they decided that they were going to do it anyway. Um, it was a deliberate provocation. So Israel shot first, um, but they were put in a corner. They had made clear that it would be considered an act of war. The actual first shots were fired by Israel, but but the initial act of war was taken by Egypt. And Egypt, Egypt lost. Egypt lost badly. Okay. Um, in terms of his personal preferences, Nasser um, Gamal Abdel Nasser, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, was the uh, the very popular president of Egypt, but he was a dictator. Um, mm. So, so they had elections and he won them right by overwhelming margins, but they weren't free and fair by any means. Um, which is weird because I think if they'd have had completely free and fair elections, he was exceptionally popular, and I think he would have been. I think he would have been elected. Mm. I think if there had. I think if there had been a democratic Egypt, he probably would have ended up being the president. But, um, but it wasn't democratic. Um, he was. He was a dictatorial leader, um, and um, he responded very much to his support groups. His own personal preference with regard to Egypt going all the way back to Egypt's War of Independence in 1948, when all of, when Egypt first declared independence, immediately that day, every Arab country declared war on the new state of Israel. Um, and in fact, to this day, most of them have never made peace. Um, yeah. So, so they declared war on the new state of Israel. Um, he actually fought in that war. He was an officer. Um, but, but after the ceasefire, um, he was involved in some of the things um, after the ceasefire, and he made personal expressions that he hoped there would be peace soon. Mm. Uh, that he actually wanted a general peace, not just a ceasefire. Um, that he want, and and he was not a. He didn't want there to be a general peace by annihilating Israel. He wanted a negotiated right. peace. Um, but he had a lot of supporters who didn't want a negotiated peace. He had a lot of supporters who were much more hostile to Israel than he was, mm. and they pushed him into this act. Um, and so it's in the it's in the aftermath. The interesting part of this is in the aftermath of the Six Days War, um, after they'd gotten Egypt had gotten badly spanked and they lost a lot of territory, they lost a lot of men, they lost a lot of uh, uh, equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just very expensive. Um, and Nasser took responsibility and he resigned. Um, oh wow! And the following day, there were massive protests demanding that he remain in office. Um, and he came Interesting. back to office. Now, people, you know, a lot of people say that the protests were staged. They were staged by his ideological supporters. 
But his ideological supporters had so much support that they were able to stage massive street protests to demand that he that he remain in office. Mm. Uh, and so that, to me, is um, an indication of the level to which he was responding to supporters. He was responding to supporters in doing it. And I think that even he didn't understand the depth of support for, for the action. Um, that was an action that he took reluctantly um, and that turned out really badly. And yet, um, even though there was this big material cost, the ideological, um, the ethnic, um, and and it was, it was mostly ethnic at that point, it, some religious aspect, but mo- mostly an ethnic uh, ideology, mm-hmm. um, Arab nationalist ideology um, that was mostly secular. Um, had this effect of of wanting wanting war on Israel, mm-hmm. um, even even if it had high material costs. So they weren't doing it because they were going to take Israel and get something out of it. They were doing it because it was uh, the right in their mind things to do, thing to do. Yeah. Um, and and so it was purely. Uh, well, not purely because they, things like this are never pure, but it was it yeah. was a non it was a non material interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, the material interest would have been to maintain peace. Um, it was done just for ideological reasons, but it but it wasn't his personal it wasn't his personal preference. It was it was his group support that was pushing. That is a uh, pretty interesting because I feel like that kind of goes against what a. Uh what many so-called dictators it's mainly their ideas that are going to get um that are going to go into practice but if he's reluctant and his supporters wanted to do that then that definitely is interesting at the at the very least because it doesn't really i feel like it doesn't really happen often you know and the more the more recent example and and i i'm I'm not i don't think that he's he's as reluctant Mm -hmm. um but uh putin's uh you know, leading Russia to war in the Ukraine. Mm. Uh, there's a substantial chunk of his supporters who have this idea, and and he shares it at least rhetorically. This idea of a resurgent Russian Empire. Mm. You know, Ukraine was part of the Russian Empire. In fact, Kiev was the original capital of the Russian Empire. Um, you know, this this idea that Russia is going to make Russia great again. Um, it, it, <laughs> Is uh, you know, is uh, he has a substantial uh, chunk of his supporters who actually there's a, a philosophical leader who is very, uh, who's he's he's very beholden to the followers of this philosophical leader, um, and uh, and so he has this rhetoric, and and the things uh, first first the invade or you know first the takeover of the Crimea, uh, and then the invasion of the Ukraine proper, um this year um are are a big signal to that group of uh of ideological supporters of just how serious he is about uh restoring the russian empire and it looks to me like as far as those supporters are concerned even if russia loses in the ukraine putin still wins now the question is does he win with the broader group you know with broader russians i don't know it may not matter because it's a pretty substantial group and they may be enough to keep him in power. Mm. And that's if, if he's able to satisfy that group enough to stay in power, 
they could lose in the Ukraine and it doesn't matter. Putin personally still wins. Right. Yeah, I know the Ukraine-Russia thing is <clears> – honestly, <throat> it's kind of complicated, isn't it? Well, because isn't the eastern part of Ukraine like the the general person like wants to be Russian anyway? Like they still consider – like they want to be part of the Russian country anyway? Is that too general of a statement? I probably shouldn't say that. I think that's – so, you know, they were part of the same country for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a substantial Russian minority because they moved there when it was the Soviet Union. The families right. moved there when it was the Soviet Union. Um, but even before the Soviet Union, they were all part of the Russian Empire. And like I said, Kiev was the original – you know, the Russian Empire grew out of basically a group of Vi- Vikings called the Rus that lived in – Kiev, mm-hmm. and they they had an empire. They had an empire around the year 1000 AD, something like that, mm-hmm. and that was the original Russian Empire. Um, the capital, I don't know when the capital moved further east, um, but it was it was it was Middle Ages that the capital actually moved out of Ukraine. Um, so historically, <clears throat> that they there's an argument that they actually are one country. Although, if we want to go with that historical argument. Kiev should rule Russia, not the other way around. So, mm. um, so yeah, it's a it's a compli- it's a complicated uh, situation. Um, I don't but, know how much how much. But there were up? there were there were agreed upon international borders, you know. And, yeah, and they they agreed upon them, and uh, you know, if you want to adjust those, the the way under international law that's accepted now is you don't adjust those by going to war; or you negotiate an adjustment. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, is it? Yeah, it's a uh, very, uh, very ashamed what's going on over there. I gotta do. My roommate and I were talking about it, but <clears throat> and he brought up a few good points. But I don't want to. I don't want to <clears throat> paraphrase or say anything that's wrong. So I'm not gonna comment on that. But it is a very interesting. It's a very shame what's going on over there. It also seems like it's lost like a lot of steam. Like we were talking about it. Like the West was talking about it for like three days straight, and then now it's like no one's talking about it at all. But I still see on social media. Like I literally saw yesterday. Like a Ukrainian soldier, like firing an RPG, like on TikTok, like like they're yeah. they're live streaming war on social media, and I feel like no one's talking about it. I don't know if that's like if you feel like I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but it's kind of crazy. Well, you know, so, so one of the things you asked me about was how we do things with data, and this is kind of kind of potentially somebody can do something here, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because. One of our big challenges, especially in international relations, is we can't do the traditional scientific thing that's the gold standard, which is to have an experiment. Yeah. You know, um, so everything we do has to just be observational. Um, but but that's not you know, and people hold that against us and say you can't do science because you can't do experiments. Well, you know, astrophysicists don't do experiments on stars that are 13 billion light years away. They're com- they're completely observational too. And nobody questions them and says, oh, well, that's observational. It can't, can't be real science. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, we have to do observational stuff. And, and um, you know, the, 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 the wealth of data coming out of this, I mean, somebody's there. Are, there are people that I'm sure are doing lots of research. Um, yeah. one, of, one of the things that comes to mind is um, early on, the uh, Google Maps was routing drivers around the traffic jams caused by the Russian tanks. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh at that, but <laughs> yeah, but it, you know, it's really, you know, like, 
it's just the reality. Real-time social media, you know, real-time crowd-shared map updates, mm-hmm. you know, um, through Google Maps. Um, and yet and yet, Google Maps can't get me around a traffic jam in Houston. <laughs> well, you got to bring the tanks over here then. Nah, I'm kidding. But uh, any, uh, as we kind of wrap up here, any like, do you have any like last minute, uh, you know, uh, not really last minute, but do you have any advice for um, people that are interested in political science that kind of want to get involved or, um, you know, moving forward in this political environment? Like, do you have any advice or something you want to say to them? Oh, wow. Um, so if Deep somebody wants to get a question, yeah. And if, if somebody wants to get involved in it from a research perspective, I, I guess the, you know, the advice is probably the same as for anything. Go ahead and go for it. Yeah. Um, you know, ac- academic research is, is what it is. It's a commitment. Um, so, um, but uh, especially for any of your listeners, if you've got people who might be listeners, who might be undergrads who are hard science people, but have this interest in it. Um just be aware that that uh, it, it's not all just sitting around talking about Aristotle. That's that, that, <laughs> whole, that whole that whole uh, philosophical uh, exercise is is actually a, sort of a separate exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a huge quantitative science side um, where people do everything from uh, you know machine learning stuff. There are people doing some really advanced machine learning stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, especially with uh, text analysis. I'm sure there are people doing machine learning stuff with some of that social media data uh, yeah. coming out of Ukraine. Um, so there's lots of room for people who especially have co- quantitative skills and want to research this. Um, just do it if you want to, um, yeah. you know, look into it and do it. Um, as far as for people um, just personally, politically, my suggestion is um stay with main, mainstream sources and just balance things for yourself. Try to be aware, try to be aware every news source is going to have an edit, editorial policy. So just try to be aware. Is it left? Is it right? And if you read something from the right, try to read something from the left and, uh, and see the points they agree on and everything else you can just kind of say is um, just treat everything else as a maybe. Mm-hmm. You know? All Tom. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time and uh, your um, just really insightful conversation today. Cause I know I was definitely enlightened by it. This is definitely something out of my field and a lot of my listeners, um, this will be out of their field as well. So we encourage you, if anything we said today, first of all, if anything I've said today is false, let me know. I'm not like a political, uh, you should not look to me as your political spearhead. Um, uh, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong on anything. Um, but I mean, like anything else, you know, <clears throat> just, uh, do the research on your own. And uh, if someone's interested in, if you're something you're interested in, uh, be sure to follow that up. But Tom, thank you again for your time. Hopefully we can uh, do this again in the future. And I look forward to, well, I guess, talking to more political science faculty here at Houston and just in general, because I think it'd be, those would be interesting conversations to have. All right. So thank you. That's all folks. Thank you.